I'd like to talk to you, Mr. Dowd, today um, are some issues about language um, and to um, extend some of these, uh, these concepts to what I think are uh, both uh, interesting, possibly important, uh, halakhic as well as, uh, as conceptual questions, and at the very least to hopefully sensitize you to some, to some issues that uh, I found very interesting and certainly sensitized me in a way to uh, look at Tefillah and uh, in a different way than, than I ever had done previously. What I want to do is to uh, extend some of these, uh, these concepts to what I think are uh, both uh, interesting, possibly important, uh, halakhic as well as uh, conceptual questions, and at the very least to hopefully sensitize you to some, to some issues that uh, I found very interesting and certainly sensitized me in a way to uh, look at Tefillah and uh, in a different way than, than I ever had done previously. What I want to do is first talk to you a little bit about the structure of language. Then what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about the psychology of language, and then we'll bring it to some of the halakhic issues. In the first place, um, all languages uh, select from the potential very large set of speech sounds. There are many speech sounds that we can make. Each language essentially selects a subset of these speech sounds that it uses, or more technical terms we call them phonetic segments. And languages differ in, many, uh, in part in terms of the phonetic segments that, that, they, that they choose. As you know, English doesn't have a ch, which is present in Hebrew. Clicking sound like, like that, something we don't have in our language, but is very common in certain African languages. Uh, the L and the R, which is very common to our language, is something that doesn't exist in Chinese, certain Chinese dialects. And in fact, they are incapable of discriminating uh, these, these sounds. So that each language selects a, per, a particular subset of these phonetic segments and use, utilizes it in the language. Of those phonetic segments, there um, is a special classification which we refer to as phonemes. A phoneme is a particular, is a phonetic segment, usually encompasses the majority of phonetic segments of a language, that have the specific function of changing the meaning of a word. That's exactly, that's essentially how a phoneme is defined. For example, uh, the word bit and pit. They're both identical except for the first sound, the buh or the puh. We know that these are phonemes, or we can identify the buh and the puh as phonemes because of the fact that it changes the meaning of the word. I mean, the meaning of the word bit is different than the meaning of the word pit. There are phonetic segments, however, which are not phonemic. A good example of this, in the English language anyway, is, for example, the two forms of the p sound, a p sound. There's what is called an aspirated p and an unaspirated p. An aspirated p is a p that, where there's a much stronger uh, force of air. And an unaspirated P is where the air is much weaker. And this comes up very, very often. For example, in the beginning of a word, all of the P's that we articulate are always aspirated. Pit. There's an aspirated P. You put your hand up to your, to your mouth. You say the word pit, you can feel the force of the air. On the other, on the other hand, the phoneme P, she said phoneme, the 
uh, phonetic segment pub that's unaspirated will always come in the middle of a syllable. So for example, if I say spit, there, if I say the word spit, I feel virtually nothing on my hand. It doesn't have that aspirated characteristic. So here is really two different ways of articulating the phonetic segment. They are both characteristic of our language, but it is not phonemic in the following sense. It doesn't change the meaning of the word. If I were to try to aspirate the P sound, when I say spit, it might sound a little funny, but it doesn't change the meaning of the word. In other languages, the aspiration will actually change the meaning of the word. So if a particular phonetic segment is aspirated, it might mean one thing. If it's unaspirated, it might mean something else. So the idea over here is that even within the set of phonetic segments, there are the phonemic segments, which are those which are contrasted, which will change the meaning of a word. And then there are those which are called allophones, which don't change the meaning, but nevertheless, they are characteristic of the speech. Another good example, which we'll report later on, is nasalization. For example, you can either nasalize certain sounds or not nasalize certain sounds. If I nasalize a vowel, it doesn't change the meaning of the word in which that vowel is found. It might change some of the acoustic characteristics, but it doesn't change the meaning. So it's, an, again, allophonic and not the meaning. So those then essentially define the three. Uh, the, we have speech sounds, which are general. We have phonetic segments, or the phonetic segments of a particular language, which are the subset. We have the phonemes and the allophones, which define uh, the, which define virtually all of the phonetic segments of a particular of a particular language. Now, how do sounds differ from each other? In which way do they differ? Now, obviously, acoustically they differ. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to hear differences. But how do they differ in terms of the way in which they are articulated? This is this is a critical critical departure point. There are basically different kinds of features, articulatory features, which are characteristic of each different sound. And one sound differs from another in terms of a combination of those particular distinctive features, those particular, particular phonetic features. And we can basically classify them into three groups. One group is based upon what we call the place of articulation, where the articulation occurs. So first, for example, there might be a bilabial sound. A bilabial sound is one in which it is formed by the action of the two lips. When I say buh or puh, what I'm doing is I'm putting the two lips together and opening them up. So the sound is formed by the action of the two lips. There is the interdental sound. An interdental sound is where I put my tongue between my teeth. So again, it's the place of articulation. By putting the tongue between my teeth, the is an example of an interdental sound. The sound is made by the air being aspirated as I put my tongue between my teeth. There are alveolar sounds. That's where I put my tongue against the tip or the very ridge of the teeth. T and D are examples of alveolar sounds. There are um, variety of other of other sounds also. There's a palatal sound, where my tongue is near the palate. So if I say j or sh, these are palatal sounds. The tongue, the, the sound is, is made by the particular positioning of the tongue near the palate. And then there are what are called velar sounds. The velar sound is a, is a sound where the tongue is placed up against the hard, uh, the soft palate towards the back of the mouth. I say k or g. 
if you, if you articulate these sounds, you can feel the difference. You can feel the difference between a ko, where the tongue is pushing up against the, uh, the back, or a sh, where the tongue is near, near the middle of the, of the palate, or a t, where it's near the front, and so on. So these are, like, these are the, the general categories of place of articulation, where the feature of each sound is dependent upon where the sound is articulated. That's one kind of characteristic. There's also a second way of characterizing a feature. The second way of characterizing a feature is in terms of the manner of articulation. Not where it's taking place, but what I'm doing in order to produce that sound. And here again, there are a variety of different categories, but to mention a few of the more important ones, one might be what's called a fricative. A fricative is when there is a, the, the, uh, the passageway out of the mouth is constricted, but not entirely. So for example, a sh sound, what I'm doing is I'm constricting my tongue almost against the top of the palate, but not quite completely. So the air is being pushed through a very narrow passageway. Contrast that to what is called a stop or a plosive. A stop or a plosive is where the, um, the passageway is completely closed and then it is opened up. And as the air is pushed through that opening, then you get the sound. An example of that would be like a puff, or a buff, or a tuff, or a duff. All of these are sounds where I'm closing the passageway either by closing my lips or by pushing my, tip, my tongue up against the roof of my mouth and the air pressure is building up behind the tongue and then I open it up and it blows out. These are called stops or plosives. They're stops in the sense that I stop the flow of air and plosives in the sense that the air suddenly, suddenly blows out. And the sound is... And that, that's what gives rise to the, to, the, to the nature of the sound. Now, already notice how there are how they're interactive. Obviously, a buh sound can be defined both in terms of its place of articulation as well as in terms of its manner of articulation. It is a bilabial, which is a plosive. So, um, already you can see how distinctive features are going to help us to separate one particular sound from another. Another form, another kind of of um, articulatory uh, um, uh, manner of articulation is what's called an applicant. An applicant is where you have both the characteristics of a stop and a plosive, where I first close the passageway, um, stopping the flow of air, but when I open it up, I don't open it up all the way and let the air rush out, but the air comes out through a small opening that is left. For example, the sound ch, when I say ch, when I'm doing it, I first close the passageway entirely, and then when I open it up, I don't open it up all the way, I just open it up a little bit, and, this, and the air is pushed through a very narrow passageway between the, the tongue and the tip the, uh, of, the, uh, of the palate. So it has the beginning characteristics of a plosive, and then continues on as an applicant. And then there are, as another example, what are called liquids. Liquids are, is a manner of articulation which is changing in a, in a complex way. But a good example of liquids are L's and R's. When you make the sound R, it also doesn't hurt to try these out as embarrassing as it might be in the crowd over here, but if you make an R, what you, if you kind of concentrate on what you're doing, you'll notice that what you do is you start your tongue towards the alveolar, the frontal part of your mouth, very similar to a D or T sound. It doesn't quite touch the, doesn't quite touch the ridge. It barely comes near it and then moves backwards towards the back part of the mouth. So it's liquid in the sense that it starts up towards the front, doesn't quite touch the tip, and then moves backward. 
and in that way, uh, in that way, the, in that manner, uh, the the, uh, the uh, L sound or the R sound is is, uh, is produced. So those again are four examples of manner of articulation. The third category, which defines uh, the distinctive feature, is the voicing. It's called the voicing. Voicing is a very important characteristic having to do with the activity of the vocal cords. The vocal cords themselves are two um, flaps, two uh, um, flaps that are, are, uh, are uh, held by ligaments. And they can be either tightened or they can be loosened. If they are tightened in such a way that they are brought close to each other, very close to each other like this, and air is forced through them, what happens is that the air causes them to vibrate. And that vibration produces a special kind of periodic sort of frequency. When you're singing, for example, what you're doing is you're using your vocal cords. You're using this voicing characteristic of the, of the vocal cords. On the other hand, if the vocal cords are held apart so that they're open, then the air that is pushed through doesn't cause them to vibrate. And so that kind of tonal quality or musical quality to the sound is not present. A very important difference then is whether one adds in that kind of voicing quality to a sound or not. A good example of this would be the difference, let's say, between sh and zh. In both of these cases, the sounds are made exactly the same way, except for one difference. When I'm making the sh, my vocal cords are open, and all you can hear is a very noisy kind of sound to it. All it sounds is like noise. But when I say I'm doing is I'm vibrating my vocal cords. So on top of that noisy frequencies, you have also the vocal frequencies. And it gives it somewhat more of a tonal quality. Whenever you're singing, you're always using the vocal cords. These distinctions, these are really the three basic distinctive, uh, the distinctive categories. Every sound can be distinguished from any other sound by some unique combination of these particular characteristics. So let's say, for example, if I want, wanted to distinguish between the sounds b, p, and, uh, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, let's say b, uh, b and p. Let's take those two first. What's the difference between a b and a p? If you'll notice, in terms of the place of articulation, they're exactly the same. They are both bilabial. If you think in terms of manner of articulation, they're exactly the same. They're both plosives. Closing my lips, opening them up, and blowing the air out. So what's the difference between b and p? The answer is this. That it has to be, if I've eliminated, you can already answer it logically, if I've eliminated manner and I've elim eliminated place, the only thing that could distinguish them is in fact the voice. And indeed, if you, <laughs> you want to try it and you say or p, you'll feel a difference in terms of your vocal cords. The p is an unvoiced sound. The b is a voiced sound. So the distinctive difference between those is going to be whether it's voiced or whether it's not voiced. Now, there are a number of contrastive pairs like that. For example, the difference between t and d. Same thing. If you think about it, t and d, the tongue is up against the alveolar ridge. Matter of articulation, they're both plosives. The only difference between a t and a d is the vibration of the vocal cords. If you try the difference between a k and a g, again, the only difference is in the vocal cords. It's back at the back of the mouth. The difference is that with a k, it's unvoiced. 
with a gust before. Now there's a point, important point to note, note and this is, this is a very subtle point from the perspective of, of the neurophysiological, neurophysiological control of articulation as well as from the perceivers from the perceiver's end, which I'll talk about a little bit later, it should be noted that the difference between, when I say puh and buh, I'm adding really two sounds. There's not only the puh sound, the, just the p part, but there's also the vowelization that comes afterwards. Vowels always utilize voicing. So in this case, to say that puh, the puh with the, with the vowel is unvoiced is somewhat simplified. The, the true state of affairs is that there is a voicing, but the voicing is delayed by anywhere from about 20 to 100 milliseconds. In other words, when I produce those two sounds, my brain has to tell my vocal cords, if you want to make a puss sound, don't start those vocal cords vibrating for at least 20 or so milliseconds. Now, by the way, 20 milliseconds is 21 thousandths of a second. So you're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a second. So my brain has to send a message down, say, wait, hold off another the vocal cord vibration for at least 20 milliseconds. And that way, the articulated sound is different. And that way, now I'm articulating a plus sound versus a bus sound. And the same thing is true with a cut, a gut, and a dun, and a tuh. By the way, the same thing, keep this in mind, is the difference between a suh and a zuh. These are both, these are both um, uh, fricatives, Closing down the air flow, pushing the air in, in between them. What's the difference between a and a zzz? You try it out, and what you'll see is that your place of articulation, everything is exactly the same. The only difference is going to be the vocal cords. In the one case, you're vibrating the vocal cords with the zzz sound. In the other case, you're not. So the differentiation between sounds in that regard is just the difference between voicing and unvoicing. On the other hand, what's the difference between a puff? a tuh, and a cut. We've already seen that each of these are unvoiced sounds. The puh, the puh, the tuh, and the cut. So what's the difference between them? They're all unvoiced, then what's the distinctive feature that makes one different from the other? Again, they're all plosives. I build up the air and I let it out. But just try it out, you'll see that the difference is in terms of place of articulation. The puh is bilabial, the tuh is alveolar, and the cuh is in the back so that it is velvet. And so on and so forth. So we can distinguish between each one of the different sounds in terms of articulation, in terms of the specific combination of features that go to make them up. And every one single sound is going to be uniquely different from any other single sound by the particular combination. Sometimes they differ by only one feature, Sometimes they may differ by two or three or four features. Obviously, a, a puh and a guh differ by two features. They differ not only by place of articulation, but also in terms of this. Yeah. According to what you're saying, then, there must be a lot of sounds that we really don't use. A lot of combinations. That's certainly the case. Any given language will only use certain combinations, but they, in fact, will, will be determined by the sorts of laws of of articulation that we, we'll talk a little bit about that, but there are certain consonant, uh, con uh, stop consonant combinations that we don't use. In fact, in other languages, in Czechoslovakian, they can have 15 consonants in a row in a way if you have a different language. So, you know, that may depend upon, uh, upon the language. It may make it more or less easy to articulate, but that's a separate, that's a separate issue.
All right. Um, that has to do pretty much with the, what I want to say in terms of the structure of the language. What I'd like to talk now about is a little bit about the psychology of speech perception, of speech uh, production. When I produce sounds, and this, this is a descriptive characteristic, what is the nature of articulation per se? So there are um, a number of, of again, uh, specific issues in terms of the way we, uh, in which we understand articulation. One of the, perhaps the most important aspects of articulation is the notion of co-articulation. When we think of speech, we think of speech as a sequence of word, of sounds, which are then kind of understood as a sequence of words, syllables, words, and, 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 and sounds. As if it were a serial process. I make sound one, then I make sound two, I make sound three, I put them together, and I end up with, with, uh, with syllables, words, etc., etc. But in fact, that turns out not to be the case. It turns out not to be the case, not only from the perspective of how I articulate, but the way in which the sounds are, in consequence, are communicated, and ultimately the way in which the sounds are perceived. In the first place, there is this notion of co-articulation. Articulation means that as I am articulating one sound, I may be simultaneously beginning to articulate the next sound. So that there is a carryover, there are overlaps between the articulation of different sounds. This can be seen very easily um, through a number of examples. If I say the word beat as, a word, as opposed to the word boot, so if you look carefully at my lips, you can see that when I say the word beat, what's the difference between my lips when I say beat and boot? See, beat, the lips are already moving backwards in anticipation of the E sound. Whereas when I say the word boot, my lips are already rounded in, term, in anticipation of the O sound not just a matter of anticipation. In effect, as I'm making the bus sound, I'm already starting the articulation of the, of, the, uh, of the sound that's coming afterwards. So that there are, there is an overlap of articulation. And this is, in a sense, highly efficient, if not necessary. The fact is that we are capable of speaking anywhere up to 15 to 30 phonemes per second. That is, in normal speech, I'm going probably at a fairly normal clip, maybe a little bit slower than normal, but at, in normal discourse, the rate of articulation is approximately 15 to 30 phonemes per second, which means that not only must I be able to articulate at that speed, but of course you have to be able to hear and to represent 15 phonemes per second. It's an extraordinary feat on my part, and it's an extraordinary feat on your part. On my part, I have to be able to change my tongue position and my to, to manipulate all of the articulate, articulate, articulating uh, muscles and mechanisms at an extraordinarily rapid rate. Each phony, which requires changes in the entire position of the mouth, have to be done at least at the rate of 15 uh, items per second. And so certainly one of the ways of increasing the efficiency of the system is by not doing them one at a time, one beat after the other, but to co-articulate so as I'm doing one, I can do the other. And in that way, I can also then communicate to you much more rapidly. I can communicate more information to you within a smaller unit of time because you, in turn, are parallel processing the information. You are hearing not only one uh, phony, but you may be hearing a series of overlapping phonies which can increase, therefore, your efficiency enormously. 
Now, there's some important aspects of this. Let, let me just mention some examples, and I'll, and I'll get to your, to, to your question. There's some ex important examples of this, which will which we'll, uh, we'll help us understand a little bit later what, uh, where I'm going. Um, one of these uh, kinds of uh, um, consequences of, of co-articulation is something which is called assimilation. Assimilation, which is really, uh, uh, as you can see almost by, by the examples that I'm going to give, is, a, is essentially a necessary consequence of co-articulation. How it works will depend upon certain, certain uh, um, parameters of the, of the sentence, of the, of the utterance. There is one kind of assimilation. Assimilation means that sounds are going to uh, blend in with each other, again, as a result of the co-articulation. But there are two, uh, two or three important kinds of assimilation. One of these is what's called anticipation. Anticipation is where I articulate a phoneme with characteristics in anticipation of something which is going to happen later on. Uh, a good example of this might be bit and bin. Bit and bin sound, I would uh, suspect the B sounds the same to you, right? If you listen carefully, bit and bin. Can you hear any difference up until you get to the end sound? I would venture to guess, probably not. You have to be very, very sensitive to sounds in order to be able to pick it up. But in fact, the two is sounds are quite different. When I say bit, T is a non-nasalized sound. I don't need to use the nasal passages. In fact, they're closed off. Whereas N, N, is a nasal sound. I have to open up the nasal passages and the air has to be moved through the nasal passages. So that in anticipation of those two different endings, the I sound is also going to take on a different character. When I say bit, it's non-nasalized. When I say bin, the I is nasalized in anticipation of the N. And I can demonstrate that I'm not embarrassed to do this, so maybe you shouldn't be either. But if I hold my nose and I say the word bit, 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 you can't tell any difference between the two words. But if I say bin, a bin and bin, you can hear that it sounds very funny. Because if I say bin, not only is the N um, reduced in, its, in, its, uh, in the ability for the air to get through, but the I sound is also so that's, an, that's what would be what we would call an anticipation error. There's also other kinds of anticipation errors which have to do with voicing. This will be, again, very important. For example, the word husband. If you think about it, husband, it's an S sound. And yet, the S sound is not a S, but it's husband. In anticipation of the fact that the phoneme after it is a B. And a B is a voice sound. And therefore, in anticipation of that, I don't say husband, I say husband. So it, it co-articulates over the S to make it, in fact, into a phoneme that it's not, to make it into a Z sound. Another example of this is um, if I say he has to go, as opposed to he has been there. You see the difference? He has to go. He has been there. When I say he has to go, I say he has to to go. The S sound is devoiced, or is unvoiced, because the, the, the uh, phoneme that follows it is a T, which is unvoiced. So I can maintain the proper relationship. If I say he has been there, the B is voiced, and in anticipation I change the S to a Z, so it's he has been there. 
You can also find the same thing with devoicing. That is, a sound which normally would be voiced is devoiced because of anticipation. If I say, I have been there, then the the sound is I have been. But I have to go. Again, two is devoiced, is, is an unvoiced sound, and in anticipation of that, I devoice the the sound, so I have to go. Now, some people are very popular, I guess the English might not have to go. But in our normal discourse, we are, in a sense, much more efficient. In order to not have to move my lips around in all sorts of strange ways, what I do is I anticipate in this way and devoice the sound. And as far as you're concerned, again, an important point, it doesn't make a difference. You understand what I'm saying. You know what, what, what I'm trying to communicate. So I've done my job, and you've done your job. There's also another kind of error going in the other direction, which is perseveration. Perseveration occurs when you have a sound that you started and you carry over some of its characteristics to a sound afterwards. Very, just keep it in mind, because it'll come back to play later on, but a good example would be the perseveration, persever, perseveration of nasalization. For example, if I say that and that. So again, remember that buh, I, I didn't say this, but buh is a non-nasalized sound. Nuh is a nasalized sound, as I indicated earlier. If you listen to the A, it's kind of difficult to hear, but when I say that, the A is non-nasalized, because it was non-nasalized previously. When I say nat, the N is nasalized, and that nasalization perseverates over the A, and I will nasalize the A as well, and that becomes nasalized. Another good example, which is an important example because it speaks to the way in which sometimes these rules, that's kind of what you were heading at before, sometimes these, these, uh, these uh, articulation principles become instantiated as rules of grammar. For example, what's the difference between C-A-T-S and D-O-G-S? Those are both plurals. But in terms of the articulation of those two sounds, what do you say? I say it's cats and dogs. The S after the T sound is unvoiced. The S sound after the G, the perseveration, is that it is carried through as a, as a, uh, as a, as a voiced Z sound. So in this way, there's a constant uh, a constant uh, uh, interplay as a result of co-articulation, and again, emphasizing the efficiency of the system rather than rather than sloppiness. And then finally, another example, again, there are many examples, but another example would be deletion, where one actually eliminates certain certain uh, phonemes or phonet phonetic segments in a in a in an utterance. M y s t e r y. How do we pronounce that? We don't pronounce it mystery. How do we say mystery? M-E-M-O-R-Y, how do we pronounce it? We don't say memory, we say memory. So we tend, again, in our normal speech, it's a vowel placed between two consonants, we very often simply delete it all together, and it's not, it's not articulate. So our natural speech patterns incorporate these kinds of changes in phonemic structure specifically because it provides us with a more efficient way of speaking, and again, from the perspective of the hearer, you understand what I'm saying, no matter how I articulate it, as long as we're speaking the same language. So that, that's one element, the co-articulation. The, uh, co Another issue has to do with the planning of speech. When I make an articulation, obviously there is, obviously certainly one would suspect that there must be some kind of a process call it a mental process, you have to, presumably an unconscious mental process, but a mental process which is planning this out. Which word should I say? 
how should I say it? How should it be articulated? What signals do I have to send to the, to the muscles in order to articulate this particular sound? And I'll stretch it out a little bit over here because I'm not just interested in this case in a sound, but in, in general in speech when I want to say something, obviously I have to translate it from the idea into the message, the message we translated into the articulated uh, form. These planning stages are probably different ways of understanding this, but one of the ways of, of, uh, of, uh, of conceptualizing planning stages is that it actually follows in a series of steps. And Fromkin, for example, as one, has suggested that what we may go through are specific stages of concept uh, identification. That is, my first step is what, it is, what is it that I'm trying to communicate? The next thing is going to be choosing the correct syntax. What is the grammatical form in which I'm going to state that idea? The next thing is going to be lexical selection. What are the words that I'm going to use to specify that particular idea? The morphemic additions, which will be the grammatical S's, uh, uh, past tense, uh, present tense sorts of additions. And then finally, the neuromuscular commands. Now I have to get it out. I have to tell my muscles, all right, this is the plan. Now say it. There's a very important point over here, which is a subtle point and probably deserves its own discussion. But I think it's a, a very important, fascinating one. And that is, if you look, listen to the order of events, it really is counterintuitive. Normally, when we think about thinking, we assume that it takes on the guise of language. That is, I think in words. What am I going to do tomorrow? I'm going to do this. Maybe I should do that. How do I solve this problem? Well, you take three plus seven, and you have, in other words, that our thinking process occurs through the medium of language. But that can't be. And it can't be, at least in the most general sense, it can't be, because what words do I choose if I don't yet know the idea that I want to think about? I can't start saying words unless I've already selected the concept. If I know some 30,000 or 40,000 words in my vocabulary that are sitting here in my brain, I have to choose appropriate words. If I'm trying to say something to you, I can't just start to, uh, looking through this entire dictionary and figuring out, well, let's see, which word should I use? And then let's put the concept together, and then we'll say, I have to have the concept first. So that thought in that respect has to be start out as an abstract concept, and then only once it has been formulated in its abstraction, can it be cloaked in the articulation, which is the words, the lexical items that I'm going to choose, and then, and then spoken. Which places the whole, the whole nature of language, of course, at a, at a, totally, a totally different level than I think we intuitively, uh, um, we intuitively assign it. But there is, aside from that issue, which, you know, again, uh, may play an uh, uh, interesting role and too much time to talk about this later, but it, 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 it speaks specifically to, to a, a very important nature of, of language. There's also, from that idea though, the notion that I'm planning. And the question is, what do I plan? So how far in advance? So I've got the concept, I've got the syntactic structure, now I'm going to start picking out the items and I've got to make it into an actual, into an actual sentence. What are the actual planning units? Do I do it phoneme by phoneme and put them together and string them together? So the answer to that question has been, um, has been uh, uh, attacked from the perspective of slips of the tongue. Very interesting way of trying to get at the nature of planning stages. 
very often one misspeaks. You don't get out what you really wanted to say. And, you know, a little bit about, uh, about Freudian psychology, the idea of the Freudian slip, the whole idea is that a slip was, was uh, giving, giving uh, an, an opening to areas of the subconscious that you were trying to suppress, but somehow slipped out. So it slipped out in a, in a word that you didn't mean to say. Certainly, that may be true in many circumstances. A good example of this might be uh, a, a speech, one of the famous examples of this is a recent speech by, uh, by uh, Bush, when he was still president, uh, in which he um, was given a big party, and he said, he said uh, to, and his opening line was, I would like to thank you all for this wonderful recession, rather than saying reception. Of course, he was in the middle of thinking about these sorts of issues, and so here you have perhaps what was a very obvious example of a Freudian, a Freudian slip. Um, Many of these kinds of slips, though, are not just fanciful. These are documented. And from these documented Freudian slips, one tries to figure out, not Freudian, so from these uh, speech slips, one tries to figure out what the nature of the planning process is. And certainly psycholinguistics, uh, psycholinguists have suggested that it is not coming from the Freudian uh, uh, possibilities, but it has to do in the nature of the planning stages. What we learn from these kinds of slips is that the planning does not occur phoneme by phoneme, but it probably occurs at least over a number of words and possibly even over clause boundaries. And I'll just give you quickly uh, a couple of examples, two examples to suggest, uh, suggest why uh, this conclusion has been drawn. For example, if I say the sentence Seymour, and these are, these are documented, it's not, these are not ones that are made up, these are Fromkin and others have, have, have uh, 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 Gareth have, have collected hundreds and hundreds of these kinds of slips uh, and try to understand from the nature of those slips what, what the process might be. One of them was uh, Seymour sliced his knife with the bread. So obviously a switch, but notice that in order to make that switch, it can't be operating on a phony by phony basis. We can understand it in terms of that earlier model that I have the basic concept, but then when I go to insert the lexical items, what I did is I put the lexical items in the wrong place. Instead of putting knife as the as the object, I put it in the I put it in the wrong in the wrong position so that they got switched. Or if I said if I wanted something like big and fat, and I said pig and vat, what would be the what would be the nature of the slip over there? Well, from v to p and from f to v are changes in uh, in voices rather than unvoicing the sounds as I, as I uh, as, I'm sorry, so, uh, rather than unvoicing the sounds of the, the one and voicing the other, I, I reverse them. Or if I say fig and bat, then I switch the phone. So these kinds of errors suggest that I am not articulating on a item by item basis, but that there is a grander plan. What I've done is I've really got at least larger segments laid out before I even start the articulation and then I make the articulation. Typically, I hit it on the nose, but sometimes I do. So that speaks from the point of view of articulation. Very briefly, what I want to mention is, what about the perception of speech? The perception of speech requires you, as the listener, to take all of these sorts of things that I've been talking about and to put them in perspective. Slips of the tongue is one thing, but as we've talked about before, the articulation <coughs> process, you have to be able to to uh, process overlapping information without getting confused. Clearly, you can. That's not a problem. 
But you also have to be able to understand the message in terms of uh, in terms of what, from your perspective, might be sloppiness. What was that word that he said? Oh, well, of course I know what that word. So there must be there must be uh, um, uh, psychological uh, um, steps that you take in terms of analyzing the information, which can jump the gap of the actual signal and say, oh, that's clearly what he, that's clearly what he or she meant. What has been suggested, and this is a very important point again, is that this may reflect the analysis of what's called top-down process. That rather than my, as me as a hearer building up my perceptions of the sounds bit by bit, I have overall uh, um, rules and contexts which I can use in order to perceive what might be considered a somewhat sloppy signal. One of the most interesting examples of this is a study by Warren. It's called Phonemic Restoration Effect. What he did is he produced sentences like, let's say something like, the wheel was on the axle. But then what he did is he took out the woof sound of the, of, the, uh, of the word. He literally cut it out and superimposed on that a cough. So you hear like the wheel was on the, on the axle. It was better than that. And he asked subjects to identify the words. And what he was able to show, and what others have shown, is that not merely did the subject know what they were supposed to hear, but they couldn't tell the difference if the sound was there or the sound wasn't there. They couldn't distinguish whether the wuh had actually been articulated or not. So if I asked them, if I gave them one situation where I had the cough with the sound there, and one where the cough with the sound had been expunged, they can't tell the difference. It's as if they had restored the phoneme to the, to, the, to, the, to the sentence over here. In other words, the context helps me not just to interpret, but what he was suggesting is it might actually make me hear sounds that I did not physically uh, receive. That you can create sounds by virtue of these, of these contexts. And certainly there are studies which have shown that this is true not only in terms of the hearer, but you, as a kind of a monitor of your own speech, make those same kinds of evaluations. That when you have to evaluate your own speech, in fact, what you do is you hear things that you thought you were supposed to say, even though you didn't say anything of the sort. Yeah? How do you use this knowledge and this new understanding of speech in a simplest form to make our ability to more effective? See, again, there, there are two issues. One issue is if you want to be properly, you know, a, a proper articulator, as the English are, for example, then you might, knowing this kind of information can help sensitize you to, you know, to, to the, the, the articulation process. But the fact of the matter is that we don't need to, because as I said, you and I can communicate, and you know what I'm talking about, and I'm, I'm saying things, and basically you understand the words. So that all of these kinds of things that I do, which are for my benefit, makes my speaking more efficient, have no effect on, on your ability to understand it. You don't understand it less because I voice or unvoice the sound. But what I do want to talk about in the, in the remaining uh, little bit of time that I have is now to bring it to what I think is a issue in terms of halakhic uh, input. The issue of articulation is raised um, or certainly becomes an issue in at least three important areas. 
One area is in terms of Kriyashma, which is with the Arisa. One area is in Kriyas Hatola, or it also might be in Kriyas Mahila, but uh, in general in, in, in Kriyas Svarim, uh, uh, in, in that category. And the other one is Tfila. I put it out of order simply because I want to talk about the first one. I have a chance I'll say something about the second one, and probably we'll never get to the third one. So this way we'll be the Risha and Risha. The problem, as insofar as Kriya Shema is stated very explicitly in the Tur and the Shulchanar in Sivan Samach Aleph, where the Tur, and again it's gone through uh, almost point by, uh, by point uh, by the uh, Shulchanar, um, analyzes Kriya Shema in terms of the specific sorts of kavanas that you have to have when you are saying Kriya Shema. So that we can start out by saying that Kriya Shema is a mitzvah in which I have to be a kabbal o malchus. So when I say Shema, the, the, the sine qua non is that I have to have kavanah when I say Shema, that I'm being a kabbal o malchus. But as the, the, uh, the, the halacha states, I don't have kavanah for everything after that, I'm still yotzah. So there is the starting point of kavanah, which is probably in a, in a totally different realm of discussion than what is, what is raised in, in Samach Aleph and carried through in Samach Beis. In Samach, in Samach Aleph, the Torah uh, Shulchan speak about the sorts of things that I have to be concerned about. So it's, it's a mitzvah to be medagdek in Kriya Shema. The person should be zonher ma'od in the way that they, 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 uh, they say the Kriya Shema and then goes through a number of different categories of things that I have to be careful about. I have to be careful to, uh, that when I say hayom, uh, uh, that, uh, that I should make a separation, so that I shouldn't think that it's only today, but it's not tomorrow. Those are p- perhaps uh, more, uh, more uh, again, uh, in terms of my understanding of, of what the, Kriya Shema, the, the content of the Kriya Shema is about. But then there are very specific aspects of articulation which are mentioned that have consequences. There are a number of them, but categorically, what I would talk about is, first of all, the importance of articulating certain words because of the fact that they might, if I say them improperly, I am creating a misinterpretation. The best example of that is the tizkuru. The tizkuru, I have to say with a zayin, the hatiz is a zayin, rather than say a tizkuru, which would be a different word. Now, of course, it's a different word at three levels. It's not the word that I was supposed to say. It's a different word, and it's a word that has the exact opposite intent of what I'm supposed to be saying. I'm not supposed to do it because I'm supposed to do it is tiskaru, I'm supposed to remember. I'm not supposed to do it because I'm getting the words sound to you segmented. Again, it is the psychology of the hearer that you hear the words segmented in terms of their actual, uh, as if they were actual separate words. But if you look at the speech record of, of, uh, of, a, of an articulation, what you will see is that words overlap with over words, and that in a funny way there are pauses and spaces between words, and sometimes no pauses or spaces, I'm sorry, there are pauses and spaces within a word, but they're not...
lamed, I have to be very careful to make sure that there is a separation between those two to indicate that there are two lamids. But there's also another kind of segmentation problem, the samkem s, that I should segment that word specifically, in this case, because of the semantic intent. If I say the samkem s and I overlap it, you may hear it as two words. But what I've got to be saying is the word mess. Mess doesn't belong in Kriyashama. The samkem osam. Again, mosam. I don't want to have the word mosam in, in the Kriyashama. Death. So the segmentation, from your perspective, doesn't mean anything. You hear the words. You hear it separately. And more importantly, I might hear it separately. As I'm, as I'm articulating to this to myself, I hear it with my inner ear in very much the same way that you do. I also use top-down processing. Of course, I'm the one who created the sentence, but as a hearer, as the Shemaya Ba'ozno, I really am hearing the same thing that you're hearing. And I use the same rules that you use. So that in the same way that you might hear this as a single word, I hear it as a single word as well. These are the kinds of things that are raised in, in, in Kriyashima. careful to make sure that there's a separation between those two to indicate that there are two lamids. But there's also another kind of segmentation problem, the samkem s, that I should segment that word specifically, in this case, because of the semantic intent. If I say the samkem s and I overlap it, you may hear it as two words. But what I've got to be saying is the word mess. Mess doesn't belong in Kriyashama. The samkem osam. Again, mosam. I don't want to have the word mosam in, in the Kriyashima. Death. So the segmentation from your perspective doesn't mean anything. You hear the words, you hear it separately. And more importantly, I might hear it separately. As I'm as I'm articulating to this to myself, I hear it with my inner ear in very much the same way that you do. I also use top-down processing. Of course, I'm the one who created the sentence, but as a hearer, as the Shemaya Ba'ozno, I really am hearing the same thing that you're hearing. And I use the same rules that you use. So that in the same way that you might hear this as a single word, I hear it as a single word as well. These are the kinds of things that are raised in, in, in Kriyashima. And so again, it's a sensitivity to those particular halachic, uh, halachic uh, um, um, uh, factors. What I want to mention is that there are other things which come by the come uh, by the by, which have intrigued me. Some of them I, I, I have a kind of hint of what what might be the halakhic uh, um, uh, consequence, but I'm not so sure. One of these, for example, is the following: when you say a word that is, well, let me start. Let me let me take a stronger example first. When you whisper, a very important point. When you whisper, one of the characteristics of whispering is that you open up your vocal cords. The vocal cords become opened up. Which is to say, you remember what I said earlier, that when you whisper and your vocal cords are opened up, there are no voiced sounds. Because the only way in which I can create voicing is by holding the vocal cords together and letting the air flow through. 
What that says in a very simple sense is that if I whisper, all of the voice sounds that I am thinking that I'm articulating are really unvoiced because I'm not using my vocal cords. So that everything, the buzz, the guzz, the duzz, and the zuzz that are whispered, in fact, are have the articulation of the unvoiced sounds. Now, you may not hear that when you whisper. You say, well, wait a minute, I'm saying a buh. But that, again, is the top-down processing. You're hearing it as if you heard the buh. You're filling in what isn't there. But in terms of the actual physical sound, there is no voicing. So now think back if it's true that I shouldn't say tis, I have to be very careful to be lahatim sasazayin and to say tis karu, and not to say it as tis karu, because of all of these, all of the, the inappropriate uh, um, in, um, uh, implications, then how can I whisper Kriya Shema? If I'm whispering Kriya Shema, then I am not articulating voice sounds. And therefore, I am by necessity saying tiskaru. Because the sin, the su sound, which if the z sound, which is not voice, is just a, is just a su sound. So that's one of the issues. So are you allowed to whisper? Now, of course, it says that you're allowed to say it balach. I'm not sure I understand exactly what balakash means. Balakash means simply quietly in such a way that you don't bother other people, but it still has to be voiced. Or does balakash mean that I can actually whisper? It's not clear. There's also other things in Kriya Shema which relate to some of the other points that I, that I raised. For example, one common error that virtually everybody I've ever spoken to makes is the word v'yohapta, which I just said improperly. Virtually every person who I've asked the question to says v'yohavta. But that's not the word. The word is v'yohavta. Now the reason why I do it, I might do it, is exactly for reasons that we talked about. Because in the natural process of co-articulation, the the, the, uh, the rather the anticipation of the t sound that's going to come later, is going to carry over, or carry backwards, onto the that. So in anticipation of saying the t, I already devoiced the v sound and make it the v'yohavta. But now it's not a word. That's not a, v'yohavta is not a word. So I'm saying Kriya Shema using words which are, which are not words. And perhaps one of the, in a, along a similar vein, the tizkaru, tizkaru, I'm not saying, it's articulating myself, but it's tizkaru. The fact of the matter is that, again, because of the anticipation errors, when you say tiz, and you're very careful, you're going to be medagdit, you're going to make that Zion, the problem is that you very often carry over, perseverate on the Zion, into the next sound. I've been doing it all of the, the whole time I've been talking over here. Every time I say tiz, then if I carry it over, then it becomes tiz guru, because I voice the cut into a gus sound. So I've solved the problem of the Zion, but now I've created a voicing problem on, on the cut and turned it into a gus. So again, I created a word that really isn't a word. Am I Yosef Kriyashima when I do that? Am I Yosef Ladadde? Clearly, we have to say that, that uh, 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 up front. In some of in some of that, it's some of base. It says, "In low dikdei yotze." But there's no question that all of these are b'diyevet dikahaloch. But lachachila, you're supposed to do it. And the base Yosef makes a very important point of saying that when we say b'diyevet, it's not just like it's a mitzvah ben amukher to be medakde. He says that, he, he notes that the tour is specifically repeats in, in Sabbath Beis, after having gone through this entire litany of, of, uh, of uh, articulation issues, 
repeats and says, even though you're Yosef, you're Zohar Adam Sheyadadik. He says, why, do you have to, why does he have to repeat that? that it's not just a mitzvah and a mukvah. There is a separate ca- uh, category, a separate issue in Kriya Shema that has to do with the way in which you, in which you articulate. So would that be a mitzvah Kriya Shema? Maybe you're Yosef B'diyeva. With regard to this other, this other characteristic, in fact, you have missed the boat. So that's the issue as far as Kriya Shema. And obviously I'm not going to get to that, but I just want to mention with regard to Kriya Torah. The issue comes out to be slightly different. This is really where I got interested in this, because as a Balkore, the question is, when I when I read and I say words, deep voicing where I should be voicing, people Kriya constantly make those. Again, we're not we're not sensitized to those things, so we never bother with it. Now the hearer typically doesn't hear these kinds of these kinds of errors, because again, it's the top-down process. But what effect does that have in terms of the in terms of the in terms of the, uh, the degree to which not only I am mostly you, but you are you're Yosef the Mitzvah of Kriya Satoru. Here there's a very interesting focus about in general whether any mistakes are are uh, are uh, are uh, sufficient to uh, to remove uh, to to uh, to negate the mitzvah, which is basically the position of the Gra, the position of the of the uh, of the, uh, of the or on the other extreme is the Balamani who says that you can make virtually make any mistake you want to, and you're still Yosef, you're still Yosef the Kriyashima. You should tell the guy, you should yell at him, you're not supposed to do that. In fact, you're Yosef, you're Yosef the Mitzvah of Kriyasatoru, even if the words are totally different than what they're what they're supposed to be. Because that's that's one understanding of the Balamani. Very strange. How could that be? Unless you understand the Mitzvah Kriyasa Torah is not so much in the, the Balkore, but in terms of what, what people hear. And generally speaking, the errors that people make, reasonably good, I don't even hear them because I, I already have my expectations. Again, from that top-down context processing, I hear what I'm supposed to hear. So therefore, you and I have kind of fulfilled our responsibility. But in the day, you're the dying. And Shimon Esri is a whole different, whole different set of issues. So I had another couple of hours. Do you have any questions? Um, we'll assume, uh, we'll, we'll focus on top down processing the language reduction. In other words, this view of topic that um, in language reduction we move, uh, we proceed from this abstract uh, realm of amorphous thought. Uh, progressively to the concretization of thought into this uh, uh, neuromuscularly produced uh, language. Um, but, like, in, from my experience, in most classes where the distinction is made between top-down and bottom-up processing, it's usually pointed out that the two work hand-in-hand in this dynamic sort of an equilibrium. Now, in language reduction, I suspect uh, this would be true as well, that um, not only that our thoughts and preconceptions affect the way we produce language, but similarly, our linguistic habits, um, be they personally um, reinforced or socially conditioned, also affect that same abstract realm of thoughts. That, that's very true, and, and it's, but it's true to an extent. And where I would, where I would make the distinction, and again, that, that's another aspect of the, of the, uh, of the uh, davening experience, which was another uh, another side of the coin that uh, that I would have liked to talk about, 
is the difference between language which is productive and creative. For example, as I am talking to you, I haven't written down what words I'm going to say. In fact, at this moment, since you asked me the question, I don't really have a conscious awareness of what the next thought is going to be. But the thought has obviously got to be there because I'm saying it to you and somehow it has relevance to what you and I are talking about. So the conceptual idea has to be there before I have gone and taken a particular set of verbal, verbal uh, units. Now, of course, once I've taken a few, then there are other things that necessarily follow. Obviously, once I have the, 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 appropriate, uh, the appropriate nouns and verbs, then the content words are going to fall into place and so on. In a sense, that's where the syntactic structure comes in. Syntactic structure already defines some of the, some of the uh, grammatical units that, that I'll be using. So there certainly is, is a certain level of habit that follows once I've gotten to that point. But I have to get to that point. And for me to begin thinking about something and to articulate it in some, in some form of language means that the concepts, concepts have to be there before the, uh, before the cloaking of those concepts were there. Concepts have to exist in the abstract. Otherwise, I wouldn't know where to go to. Otherwise, I'd have to pick out words and see. Now, see, here's a word. Does this fit a concept that I want to use? OK, then I'm going you know, to use this concept. But then, then the card is there before the horse. What I'm trying to do is to communicate a concept. How I communicate it happens to be by using, by using words. Now, on the other side of that, as far as davening is concerned, there, clearly, we are using a, a, a different aspect of, of, of the language production. Because once I start saying ashray, I don't have to even, I don't have to think about what the next words are. It just comes spilling out of my mouth. And in a sense, that's the very part of the problem of kavana that in davening, we are capable of producing long trains of verbiage without ever having to think about anything. So we can start saying, you know, start davening, and then find ourselves six pages later on down the line, and our mind was, you know, that's the whole, the whole dilemma of kavanah. That we, we, we've created such a, that's the nature of davening, that you create such a habit out of the articulation that it becomes, in, in fact, effortful to attribute intention and kavana to those, to, those, uh, to those words. So that a lot of the kinds of rules of articulation that you use in, you know, to normally smear and so on as habits, in this case, become much broader in their scope because the very tefillah that, that I'm saying over here is so automatized that you know, I can be driving, the same way I can drive and, and, and not know where I'm getting from one, from one point to the other. I can do the same thing with my document. Never, never. I have minimal background in Halakha. But if, even from my background, I've seen that there is a distinct theme in Halakha where we would rather have people engage in a repetitive, automatized action rather than... I, you know, I, I, again, uh, that, that, that may, there, there's some level at which that's true. In other words, just because it, the Halakha says that you have to have kavana for the first, for the first puzzle. If I am incapable of having kavana for anything after that, does that mean that I shouldn't say it? I don't know. Maybe not. You're right. There is something. In fact, that may be very, very close to what I was heading for in terms of my notion of there being two different levels, or at least two different levels in, in the saying of Kriyashima. But there's one level that has to do with the actual kavana. There's another aspect which has to do with just saying the words. And you have to say the words. But once that becomes an aspect of the Kriyashima or the tefillah, 
then it has to be done not in such a way that you can understand it, but that the words that I'm saying are real words. And so then it places, in a sense, a much stronger burden on the, on the, on the speaking. It's not just speaking, so then the words have to really do words. I can't use these little sloppy things of uh, de-voicing and so on that I do when I, when I talk to you, but I have to say words. Yeah? I don't. You know, I'll tell you something. Somebody said, when I first started thinking about that, a student <laughs> asked me that question. I think it's a very good question. In other words, you can get so wrapped up in, the, you know, in this articulation that you, in a sense, overlook the, 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 the broader importance of, of, uh, of tequila. There's, there are, in fact, I, I know instances of people who, I keep, remember as a kid going into a shul and, and you know, walking, and all these old men are sitting there and all I hear is, you know, as I'm walking through the shoes, and they're trying, you know, before they even adopt me, they're saying Shema, they're, they want to make sure that they say that tis, nothing else is important. They just got to make sure that they, you know, that they said that Zion. And, and, and you know, and I'm walking down, and I know of instances also of, of uh, unfortunately, of, you know, obsessive compulsive personalities who very often can't get beyond davening because they get hooked in exactly these kind of things. And, you know, as a, as a typical obsessive compulsive, and, and perhaps as a functional obsessive compulsive, they literally just can't get off the word. So there's no question that there's a, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain limit. On the other hand, it's very clear from the way in which the tour and the Shulchan Aruch go through this in very great detail, and again, the, the emphasis on Yazahir, that you do have to be sensitized to this and say to yourself, you know, either I'm just going to rush through it and get the words down, and you know, and I'll worry about the broader kavanas and, and be very happy with that, and that's very important. You know, but these words, uh, the words are words. If I understand, if I hear them, and it sounds right to me, that that's good enough. Or you're medotic. Is it even being a medotic enough? Being a medotic. That is that is an interesting perspective, and it might very well be true. And in fact, I, my, my suspicion is that that might be, in, in, in a somewhat restricted sense, because it can't go too far what the Balamanic really, really hold. That speech is communication. And if my concern when I'm talking to you is that you understand, that when I'm talking to our Baruch Hu, you know, I have to have the right covenant, and, and it has to be said in words, but it has to be understandable. And so that, you know, he really takes, at least according to one sheet in the Beis Yosef, he takes a very broad view of errors. You really, you know, it's a, don't correct your yotze, your yotze, your, your kriyasatot. Nobody sat up there and jumped up and uh, jumped up and down and, and was worried about correcting this person. That you were yotze, you're missing. And my sense of it is that it's really, it, it really uh, that, that that is the that is the svara behind the, behind that position. But on the other hand, the svara on the other uh, about and the other position that people, uh, you know, people who don't think they go to achas is low yotze, is clearly taking a different perspective. Yeah. You can. The halach is that you can say, isn't that true? The thing is, is that, see, now, but, but, and I thought about that. Well, but it's interesting because what, what the halacha says, if I remember, is that if you say it you have to be very careful that in that lashon you are articulating it the way it's supposed to be in that lashon. In other words, you have to, the same kind of care that you have to take for, but there's also clearly another level. 
And again, I think that, that that's uh, sort of the difference between between being yosin and mitzvah at one level and another, which is that all of these all of these uh, uh, the, the idea that there are that there are uh, uh, the you know we say Hashem uh, Lokech we repeat it because there are just enough osios uh, against Ramachay Barav Shasagido. So I mean this and this is stated as part of the halach. So you have to say each letter because it's uh, and we have to even repeat. And there's a whole big debate about what language properly is is stated explicitly. 